you have a Bible, go ahead and find 1 John 4, please. 1 John 4 in your Bible. By now, you're probably familiar with the general plan for Sunday evenings this winter at church. Pastor Jim has taken the book of 1 John and then divided the book up into based on themes. And he's put those themes into nine different groups, and then each of those nine themes he has assigned to a teacher from the congregation. He gave us a stack of study books and said, come back on your assigned Sunday and teach the church what John says about this theme. Now, beyond the, the simple importance of biblical exposition for our church, the genius behind this idea really has two aspects to it. The first is the, this process of what we're doing is an acknowledgement of the truth that Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says that God has given as gifts to the church preachers and teachers for the purpose of building up the body of Christ and preparing its members for service to God. Now, we understand that to be a statement of truth for the local church here as well as for the universal church out there and other places other than our body here. Now, because of our personal history and traditions and how we tend, churches like Calvary Baptist Church, tend to find and think of pastors, we recognize that truth easily as part of the universal church, that God has gifted preachers and teachers to the universal church to build up the body, because we tend to think of pastors most often as someone who is brought into the local church from the universal church. That's how Pastor Jim ended up here. That's how Pastor Michael ended up here. But we also understand Paul's statement of pastors and teachers and preachers as gifts to the church to be true of the local church itself, each congregation, meaning that God has given the gift of teachers and preachers to this local church, meaning that there are preachers and teachers in our congregation that God has given us to teach us and we would let them languish unused to our own spiritual peril, right? But that being said, the only way anyone is ever going to know if a person is that gift to the church is to try it and find out. That's the other reason why this is such a fantastic idea and has become an annual event here at Calvary Baptist Church this slow motion Bible conference preaching session in the winter is in order to give other people, not named Jim or Michael, the chance to stand up here and preach God's word to God's people in this church. Because by doing so, we as a collective church body, we are then better able to know who and if God has gifted a person in our congregation as a preacher or a teacher. I'm telling you all of that as a reminder so that our church has a biblical understanding of these things and so that we can be prepared to repeat them as necessary in the future. This isn't the first winter preaching series that we've done. I'm sure it won't be the last. Now, some of the people, some of the men who stand up and preach during this time from the Bible in this annual event are going to be very familiar to us. We've heard them preach before. Sometimes their teaching, though, may be new. We might come to church and there's someone preaching that you've not heard before. Some of them we may never hear preach again. Others, maybe not. It is entirely possible 
that a man preaches a few times at the church and the church says together kindly that perhaps the place God has for you in our local church body is not behind the microphone. But by the same token, it is entirely possible that when you attend what has become the annual winter preaching series at church, you may very well be hearing a sermon from a future pastor of Calvary Baptist Church that God may see fit to call to our church from our church. Now, our church needs a robust understanding of preachers and preaching and the gift that preachers are to a church. And so for that reason, I'm grateful that Pastor Jim orchestrates this annual event so that we can take an annual step in that direction of securing that understanding. And each of us, as active members and hearers of the church, has an important role to play in the process. And this is not a process that plays out just on this side of the pulpit. It's a process that has to play out on both sides of the pulpit. Now, in terms of the specific content that we have been learning this winter in the winter preaching series, Pastor Jim has taken the book of 1 John and divided it up into those nine sections and assigned it to each person. And 1 John is perhaps the best book to be able to do that by theme with. Because John's thoughts in 1 John are famously cyclical, meaning that John returns to several themes multiple times throughout the five chapters that make up the book. Now, the overall thesis of the book itself seems to be on genuine Christian belief. And in this book, John provides God's people with various ways and different tests as to how they can know that they, along with the other people around them, have a genuine belief in Jesus. Because it isn't pretty to think about. It's not a pleasant thought. But we know from Scripture that the ranks of God's people are riddled with fake believers. And so in writing this letter, when, re in, when we read what John wrote in his letter, we come to the conclusion, inescapably, that John had a beef with the fence-sitters, the tares among the wheat, cop-outs, the quitters of the church. Because John knew in a visceral, personal way that not everyone who professes Christ actually possesses Christ. And since the very first days of the church itself, the church has had to contend with people leaving the church and re even remaining in the church who are not actually part of the church by salvation and belief. You look through the New Testament, and very nearly every single New Testament writer had something to say about the theme of belief and apostasy, with perhaps John and Paul and maybe the writer to the Hebrews being the most notable and the most prominent. And so we find in 1 John a repeated theme of belief, which is why our Bibles are open to 1 John 4. When I got my section of scriptures that had been assigned to me, there were a couple I could have picked from. The same theme comes up in multiple different places, and this was the one that was the longest chunk of scripture in my section. I'm like, well, that's the one I'm going to take. And so I started reading in 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. Take a look at verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits 
to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So if the book of 1 John is all about belief, this particular section of 1 John 4 is all about who to believe. Abraham Lincoln is famous for saying that you can't believe everything you read on the internet. And in these verses, John is encouraging his readers to cultivate a healthy skepticism of what they are told by spiritual teachers in and about the church. God's people need a way to discern the false from the true when it comes to things that are spoken of God. John is about to give us that way. John was very, very concerned that his readers wouldn't believe just anything they heard about God or anything that God supposedly said or that God supposedly wanted them to do. Look back at verse 1. You'll see what I mean. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Right, John's emphasis here in verse 1 on the, on the word spirit, that's a throwback reference in the book to chapter 3. At the end of chapter 3 in 1 John, he reminded his readers that they had been given the Holy Spirit by God as a part of their salvation and that God would use his spirit in them to guide them into truth and to give them information about himself. So when John is speaking in those terms, that's what he's encouraging them to think back to and to act on. Keep in mind that when John is writing this, his readers are living it without the benefit of having a complete Bible. They don't have a New Testament because they are living the events that would become the New Testament. Their days and their life is very much still the days of new information coming from God by way of prophecy and by way of direct revelation. So in that atmosphere and in that environment, where God may send them a new message that they have not heard before. They needed a way to tell the true prophets from the pretenders, to tell the genuine message of God from the false. And the first thing John does in that regard is to point out to his readers that not everything said about God or in God's name is actually true. He literally said, do not believe every spirit because false prophets have gone out into the world. Now that's still every bit as true for us as it was for John. Not everything said by people who claim to be Christian or who claim to speak for God is true. Interestingly enough, John does not say 
whether the people speaking falsely about God that he's referring to know that what they are saying is false, just that it's possible and is happening that some of what is said about God and some of what is done in his name is not true. Now that's a problem because we like tidy categories. By we, I mean I like tidy categories, right? We are prone to think that Christians say one thing. Non-Christians say don't. The church behaves like this. And the world behaves like that. And when Jim Riddle locks the doors after church starts on a Sunday morning, it's the church in here and the world out there. What John is reminding us is that both faithfulness and discernment are going to be necessary on the part of God's people as we listen to what is said about God because not everything said about God and not everything done in his name is of the Holy Spirit. It may very well be of the world. How to tell which is which is the focus of this section in 1 John 4. So let's keep reading. Look at verse 1 again. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So the first test, the first test of truth that John gives to his readers to apply is the question of Jesus himself. It's a question really with two layers. Right? The first layer to John's test is pretty basic. Anyone who claims that Jesus didn't come in the flesh is not from God. Now we also need to note that in the writings of John, the book of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation, the phrase the flesh meant actual human flesh, as in a body. Contrast that with Paul. Paul often used the phrase the flesh as a figure of speech referring to a person's sinful nature. But not John. In John's writings, the flesh refers to actual flesh, a person having a body. By and large, in our day, it is generally accepted that Jesus of Nazareth was an historical person who really did live in the first century. Now, at the time of John's writings, that may or may not have been the case. Either way, John says that a person who denies that, and there are some, you can know that person is not from God. Now, the second layer to John's test that he's giving them here comes from the title that he uses for Jesus. The title Jesus Christ is common enough to our ears that we almost tend to think of it as a single word. We do that sometimes. I did that. When our family first came to Calvary Baptist Church, I assumed that John Cole was one word. I never heard anyone call him just John. It was always John Cole. So I literally assumed that John Cole was his name. It was only later that I realized, and I won't tell you how much later, that I realized John and Cole are two words, not one. A similar thing sometimes happens with us and Jesus. The words Jesus and Christ are spoken together in our context so often that it sounds like one name to our ears. But it's not. Jesus is a name given to a child by his mother. Christ 
is a title given to a son by God. Christ means king or lord if you translate it into English. As in the ultimate ruler, the highest authority. We would be more proper to say Jesus the Christ. I'm not advocating for a change in vocabulary, just pointing out the reality of the words that we use. As such, John says that truth from God will begin with the recognition that Jesus has come in the flesh as a person, for starters, and that Jesus is the Christ, the King, the rightful ruler of all that there is. Jesus himself made this connection clear for his apostles in multiple places in his teachings, including, if you want to look them up later, John 12 or John 18. A good summary statement of these two things put together comes from New Testament scholar Karen Jobes. And this is what she writes. Therefore, the confession that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh does not simply acknowledge that Jesus was a historical person but it also expresses the redeeming significance of his incarnate life, death, and resurrection on behalf of the human race as the Christ. Now, knowing that full confession, keeping it in mind of Jesus and his exalted status in mind, let's look back at the Bible and keep reading. Look at verse 3, where John continues and says, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. So John points out that if a self-proclaimed spokesman for God does not make a full affirmation of Jesus, his personhood, his life, his work, his death, his status, as the Redeemer, the Savior of all mankind, given the title of Christ by God himself, John says, that guy isn't speaking for God. That guy's spirit, therefore, is the spirit of the Antichrist, which John already mentioned at least once in this letter. Back in chapter 2, John says he applies the label Antichrist to the people whom Satan is using to carry out his work in this world. It's very much an either-or dynamic. And that dynamic of being either pro-Christ or anti-Christ is an affirmation of the dualistic nature of life on earth and the fact that you are either for God or you are against him. There isn't a third option. Neutrality is a myth. This is why fence-sitters have no place in John's worldview. Because neutrality is a myth, and you're either on God's side or Satan's side, pro-Christ or anti-Christ. Now that's up close and personal and stepping on toes. John doesn't seem to mind. But as personal as that aspect is, John takes it another notch further in the next verse. Look at verse 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. John speaks so personally 
to his readers, so affectionately to his readers, almost taking on the persona of a grandfather and calling them little children. Only grandpas get away with calling grown men little children. And John points out two things that are true about them. Number one, he says, you are from God. Number two, you have overcome them. The you are from God description, that's not surprising. Right? Earlier in the letter in 1 John 2, John noted that the people he was writing to are the faithful remnant of believers left in their church after a significant split. Right? A good contingent of fake believers had left their church and they are no longer part of the true faith. That was chapter 2. Those who remain then have no incentive other than true faith. Their perseverance in the most biblical way possible indicates the true nature of their faith as being from God. The other phrase he uses to describe his readers, you have overcome them, needs a little bit of attention. The them John's readers have overcome are the antichrists of verse 3. They are people, John says, who claim to speak for God and who say things about God, but who are not of God. And yet, John says, you have not been persuaded by them. You have overcome them. The people saying false things about God and his work do not have an effect on the people of John's church because, and then he goes on to say why. Look back at verse 4 again. You are from God, little children, and you have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And that verse, again, refers to the dual choice of opposing forces in the world, God's side and Satan's side. There's a biblical allusion here in this phrase, a reference in the phrase, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. And it goes back to the life of Jesus as recorded in John chapter 16. We're not going to read that tonight, but if you go back and you read John chapter 16 later, you will hear Jesus refer to Satan and himself in these exact terms. The power in the world and the power that overcomes the world. So when John says that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, he seems to be making a direct reference back to John 16, the teaching of Jesus about the reality that the power of Jesus to animate his followers and accomplish his work is greater than the power of Satan to animate the world and accomplish his rebellion against God. Knowing that dynamic is at work, knowing that his readers are a part of it, John writes in confidence to his church that it is because of Jesus in their lives that they have been able to see through the false things that are being said about God and to know that the people speaking them are not from God. The next verse speaks exclusively about the people saying things about God that are not true. Look at verse 5. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. In his writings, John uses the phrase the world in order to encompass all of general human society 
and its ways of living. A modern way of saying it in our vernacular would be to use the phrase the majority culture. Right? So when John says that these people saying things about God that are not true are of the world, he means that they represent the majority culture of the time and its ways of thinking. Now that shouldn't be a surprise. After all, the Bible describes Satan as the God of this age, meaning Satan currently has more control over people and culture at present than God does, meaning Satan's side is the majority culture. This is why, John says, people who say false things about God have a ready audience in the world because there is confirmation bias at work and the majority culture is eager to hear things about God that it already agrees with, which makes for fertile ground for things that aren't true to be said and done in God's name. But we also need to know that John isn't saying whether or not those people who say false things about God know they are false or not. The people teaching wrong things about God, both in verse 5 and also right now in 2024, may very well believe that they are saying and doing the truth because the God of this age has blinded their minds. And the next verse then, John goes on to tell us exactly how his readers can know the false things being spoken about God aren't true. How, John, do I make the discernment? Look at verse 6. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John makes a very personal shift here. We are from God, he says. Now the immediate temptation is to understand we in that sentence to be John and his readers. But that's not who we refers to. When John says we are from God and he who knows God listens to us, in this case, he's using we and us to indicate people who speak the truth about God, the people who have taught these Christians about God. He's using we and us to put himself in a separate group away from the people in the church he's writing to. We speak the truth about God, and those who know God listen to us, he says to a group of people that he expects will listen to him. The we in this verse, then, refers to John and the other apostles of Jesus. We, the apostles, John says, are from God. And people who know God as God listen to God's apostles and what they teach. People who are not from God, they are of the world, they walk in lockstep with the majority culture, and they will not listen to us, John says, though we are the personal emissaries of Jesus himself. Now, at first blush, to our ears, it seems a little bit arrogant for John to hold himself up and the other apostles as the authority on what is true about God and what is not. But when you think about it, it's not only not arrogant, it's actually the only possible biblical conclusion. Because John isn't claiming this authority for himself. He did not make himself an apostle. He didn't work real hard and build up a following and say, y'all listen to me now. Jesus made him an apostle. Jesus called him 
taught him, lived with him, and then sent him. So by saying we are from God, John is reminding his readers that his own authority to speak on God's behalf was given to him by Jesus. Jesus commissioned the apostles to be his witnesses who told the world what he did and to teach the world what he preached. That's the unmistakable conclusion of the Gospels when you read it and you find that on multiple occasions Jesus commanded the power of crowds and almost invariably did something on purpose to make them mad so they left him. And he was left with the apostles. One of my favorite passages in scripture is Jesus, the crowd had left him. This is John 6. The crowd had gone. Thousands of people followed him for days and he drove them away on purpose. And he looks at the disciples and he says, you want to go too? Peter looks back and he says, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And in that moment, Peter's getting it. The apostles were the focus, not the crowds. And then Jesus sent the apostles into the world to be his personal emissaries. Jesus gave the right to the apostles and the responsibility to be the arbiters of the truth about God. That's why the middle of verse 6 says, he who is not from God does not listen to us. Because the apostles, as chosen by Jesus, and as recorded in the writings that God left for us, are speaking the truth about God, whether anyone wants to hear it or not. They're not watering down the life truth of Jesus in order to win friends and build a platform and pacify the majority culture. No, they're giving God's truth to God's people straight up at full strength. Now, the immediate point of application for John's readers after getting to the end of verse 6 would have been that they should listen to the teachings of John and the other apostles, not these other people who were claiming to speak for God. Right, that's straightforward enough. John says there are people speaking in God's name who are not from God. Y'all need to listen to the personal emissaries of God who have been recorded and given to you. Well, the neat thing about the Bible is that the point of it all for them is still the point of it all for us. And when it comes to information about life and how to live it and what to do and what to believe and how to craft a worldview and a life in this place, we should also listen to the teachings of John and the other apostles, not the thought process of the majority culture. Now, that's not earth-shattering truth. Anybody who spent more than two sermons in this church could have told you that. Now, the advantage that you and I have over the people in John's day is the advantage of information. Right? They had the teachings of John because he knew them and he wrote to their church. We have that plus the rest of the New Testament. It's not a complicated spiritual truth. It's just really difficult. Once again, we find that what God asks us to do is not complicated. It's very simple. Believe me. Trust me. Live as I say. Because I'm your God and I know best. It's simple. It's just really hard. But, John says, 
anyone who embraces that body of apostolic truth, John would describe as of God. And anyone who rejects it or distorts it, John would describe as antichrist. Now that's harsh, but that's the unvarnished truth of 1 John 4 and what it means to believe in Jesus and to have your faith in Jesus put to the test. The arbiter of truth about God and how to live for him is still the same for us as it was for them. It's the teaching and the testimony of Jesus and his apostles known and recorded for us in the New Testament. Right? No teaching or anything that is said about God can be true if it contradicts that biblical witness regardless of who says it and how nice they might look or how kind they might seem. Now that's easy to accept and put into practice when it, the wolf has an obvious sheep costume on and is on cable TV spouting out of context verses to justify whatever. Right? It's harder to accept Harder to put into practice when that person might be from your own family. Maybe your own church. That was their reality. People from their church that John was dealing with. Or when the, maybe the message isn't an outright heresy, maybe it's just a subtle twist on a biblical truth that soothes our feelings and allows us to paper over a biblical reality or difficulty of the Christian life instead of calling us to repentance. Because we also have to consider that what the people saying the untrue things about God were attempting to accomplish back in John's day. They clearly didn't want to leave belief in God altogether. They were still working and striving and writing and teaching. They were still in communication with God's church. In some cases, they were still in communion with God's church. They wanted to maintain some semblance of a public faith and a belief in God. Now, we don't we don't know all of the theological particulars that were going on behind the scenes in 1 John 4. Right, that's been lost to history, but it, it seems that they were essentially trying to keep the pleasant parts about God while cutting out at least some of the parts they didn't like. It isn't known exactly which parts of God's word they wanted to keep and which parts they were doing away with. Those cultural details have been lost to us. But I know how it tends to play itself out in my life. I know how it tends to play itself out in our lives in 2024 and the things we're tempted to discard. There are those who subvert biblical teaching in an overt way. Did God really say? There are those who subvert biblical teaching in a more subtle way perhaps even unintentionally. The overt things, I'm not terribly worried about. You need very, very little reminder of that. It's the subtle things that tend to trip us up, most often because they hit closest to home and they play upon our most closely held weaknesses. Often the way this dynamic of subverting biblical teaching works itself out among genuine Christians today is when faithfulness to the scripture would impose uncomfortable realities on our personal lives or maybe on the sensitive personal lives of our families and our plans. It could be big things. One man, one woman married for one lifetime makes a great sermon. I think I've even seen it on a t-shirt. 
And there are plenty of people who stand up and pound the pulpit about the sanctity of marriage, right? Maybe even rail, if they're feeling brave, about the evils of divorce until it's their family member or maybe themselves who's seeking one. There's plenty of people who stand up for a biblical truth, wear one of those Christian t-shirts, right? God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Sexual morality in the country is going down the tubes and this is all wrong and evil until it's their kid or their sibling who comes out to embrace a lifestyle of unbiblical morality and then almost on cue and that's when the backtracking starts and the reinterpretations of what words and verses actually mean begins. And I didn't pick those examples out of randomness. I'll bet every single person in this room has had that experience in life of someone you know and love, maybe even you, who starts to backtrack and change when it becomes really personal. Because it's easy to say when it doesn't cost you anything. Or it could be as simple as what we eat, how we eat, or how much we eat. As consequential as marriage and divorce and sexual morality and as everyday as snacks. Right? But it's easy to say that marriage is sacred and sexual morality is absolute and right and wrong are black and white when it doesn't cost me anything. But it's a whole other thing altogether when holding fast to biblical truth begins to cut into the personal, into what I wanted to do today, into how I wanted my life and my family to play out. Richard Wormbrand, famous for starting the Voice of the Martyrs, was writing from a Soviet prison under persecution for Christ. His book is literally called Tortured for Christ. He wrote to his church, and he said, stand fast. So we give up only what we imagined we believed. Well, by this, John says, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We know who is saying true things about God and who is not, because they will adhere to it at all costs to the original arbiters of God's truth and to the words that they left us. And they will be faithful above all else because they know that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Right, but that is hard. Because being faithful to the strictures of God's word is going to cost us. It may cost you dearly. It's going to cost our church. Let's not sit here and pretend that we can close the doors and cloister ourselves away and be faithful and not expect to pay a price for it. Sometimes the price might be big. Maybe we're ready for that. Sometimes the price might be little and we just make a lot of people really unhappy. Are we ready for that? But being faithful to the strictures of God's word will cost it sure cost the people in John's day. Go back and read First John. Bunch of their church just up and left. But we have to examine ourselves. If we would be faithful people of God, then we have to acknowledge that when we cannot accept the straight truth about God's ways, 
whether it's something big and consequential as what to do with this person that I love who's now telling me their life is so far removed from God that I have to, I don't know what to do with that, or as simple and inconsequential as what I'm going to eat this week. Right? If When we feel the need to niggle and wiggle and work out from underneath the uncomfortable bits of God's words, whether it's weighty and significant or seemingly innocuous, when we feel that need to niggle and wiggle and get out from under the uncomfortable bits of God's word, 1 John 4 would have us understand that we have begun to walk the path of error. Now, it's not a question I can answer for anyone else. But take an honest look at your own thoughts about God. Is it possible that somewhere you're picking and choosing which parts about Jesus we like and we believe and we'll follow them and yeah I'll put that into practice but are we making a full confession of him as savior and lord are we eager to obey the easy parts of the word but prone to niggle and wiggle when it comes to the uncomfortable bits that get personal it would be easy and simple to take first john 4 and apply it to the people who are out there right? the people who use and abuse god's name for their own ends and i love a good parody video about Kenneth Copeland as much as the next guy. If you don't and never seen them, please tell me, I will share. Right? I mean, if that's your goal, to take First John 4 and apply it to the people out there who use and abuse God's word for their own ends, I mean, there's a false prophet of the minute popping up all the time. Sometimes I think the internet was invented for heretical purposes. Right? But doing that, that would let me off the hook way too easy that would let us off the hook it would deny the temptation that we have as people of God to go along with the thinking and the ways of the majority culture if and when it suits us that's not what John says so let's not do that let's do the hard spiritual work of facing facts about ourselves of putting our faith in Jesus the Christ to the test that John gives us in 1 John 4. So as we finish up tonight, let's take inventory of our brains. Let's take inventory of our lives. Let's look and see if and where we are picking and choosing things about following God we like, but setting aside, or maybe just, let's be honest, ignoring things we don't like. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. Right, so let's pray right now and let's ask God for his help to be faithful in these things as individuals first and as a collective church second. Lord God, this evening, uh, we're thankful and grateful for the word that you have left us. Thank you for the life of John, for his own faithfulness and the ways in which it cost him dearly to hold to you and to your teachings. I pray that you would help us to emulate that. I pray that you would help us to put our profession of faith to the test of faithfulness to your word, that we would listen to those whom you have given us as guides for shaping our worldviews and our ways of thinking and doing about life.
We're grateful that you've chosen us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for making us your children. And I pray that you would help us to be remade into the image of your son through the power of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray.